welcome to episode 47 of the In All Things podcast, a podcast where we host conversations about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with an art historian, Dr. Katie Kresser, about art and faith and how art can train our imaginations to look at our neighbors and the world with dignity and love. She is a writer that I follow closely, and her book, Vetzalel's Body, is the most thought-provoking book I've read this year. So I was thrilled to have the chance to ask her some questions about it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to be a part of an ordination service for a friend. When it was his turn to speak, he addressed the other people he had asked to play a role in the service. He eloquently expressed gratitude and love, and I will always remember what he said to one of the other ministers who was present. You've always seen me. In an age of spectacle and social media, we are trained to believe that appearance is all that really matters. But since we are always performing, it can feel like we are never really seen for who we are. When someone comes along who sees us, it stays with us. Because we all deeply long to see others truly, but also to be truly seen. This insight is near the heart of Katie Kresser's book about the history of art. Dr. Kresser is a Harvard-trained art historian who teaches at Seattle Pacific University. Her book, Batsalel's Body, tells the story of how the Christian worldview, in which God becomes human, lives, dies, rises, and ascends, leads to the birth of our conception of art. Art, she argues, teaches us to come to terms with transcendence. It teaches us how to gaze, how to respect the mystery and dignity of otherness. But we have turned away from this iconic way of looking at the world. We have returned to the way of idols, trying to manipulate, possess, or control. And this has produced a society of spectacle, where the inner life disappears and appearances are all that remain. Dr. Kresser writes to show how art can help us find our way out of the mental prisons we've constructed. Learning to look again, in the patient process of gazing, in love, and in hope that we too might be seen. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Katie Kresser. So I'm joined now by a guest, Dr. Katie Kresser, who is the author of a fantastic book that she wrote a few years ago, but I've just now got around to reading it. It is the most thought-provoking book I've read this year, and so I'm delighted to be talking to its author, Katie. Thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure, and thanks so much for those kind words. I'm really happy that you found the book so thought-provoking. So the name of the book is Betzalel's Body, The Death of God and the Birth of Art. And so I'm sure that those who pick up the book or hear the title, those who are listening to that, will say, well, what does that mean? Uh, maybe they'll recognize the name Betzalel. But what does the title mean, especially The Death of God? I've raved about this book to many mm-hmm. people. Uh, But it's been a challenge for me to state the argument succinctly. So I'm curious to what you would say uh, when you're asked to describe what you were trying to accomplish with writing this book. 
right. Thank you so much. That's a great question. I have wondered sometimes if the title is slightly too elusive. Um, I was trying to avoid, I, I'd say, Christianese. Uh, I wanted the title to be thought provoking and a little bit challenging. I didn't want it to seem as if it fit into a, a very specific genre of very like platitudinous or sort of dogmatic type of uh, literature, type of writing. Yeah, the, the death of God, I think the reason that's in there is um, because I was kind of trying to recall Nietzsche just a little bit, talking about God is dead, yeah. uh, make it sound sort of challenging in that regard and modern. But um, I, what I'm referring to is the death of Christ on the cross. If you read the book, the resurrection is certainly implied and, and hinted at, and ultimately the book kind of reaches the fulfillment referring to the resurrection. Um, the birth of art part of the subtitle as well, I think is probably kind of referring to Nietzsche's birth of tragedy in a certain way. Um, but yeah, to summarize uh, what the book is about, my argument is basically that um, the Christian paradigm or the Christian worldview that trickled into the world and sort of um, started to grow in the world after the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection, actually created um, an environment in which the concept of art could be born. Hmm. Um the word art as we use it today is a rather strange word. No other culture, like other cultures in the history of the world haven't really had a word for art like we do. It's a relatively new concept. It's a very specialized concept that's also hard to define. But I think it's an intrinsically Christian concept. And um, I think the paradox of the incarnation made our idea of art in the modern world possible. Just as the embodied Jesus Christ was both imminent and transcendent and was able able to be an image of God and imply or point to something much greater than its physical confines on the earth. Um, so I, I think the artwork functions that way as well. I think art, as we think of it, is an intrinsically kind of incarnational object. Yeah, that's fascinating because when I first sort of read The Birth of Art, I thought to myself, well, aesthetic objects or aesthetic artifacts have predated the coming of Christ. But you're really talking about this way of understanding art that is really the invention of Christian culture that comes out of a particular narrative of, of incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. So I wonder if you could say more about why would a person say, well, there's art. If you go to an art museum, for example, there, there might be these sort of aesthetic objects that predate Christ. So what is the concept, the new conception of the divine in Christianity that re results in an the possibility of art as we understand it? Yeah, great question. Art museums are such interesting phenomena because they are these very prestigious, almost sacred feeling buildings that collect objects from all over the world and all different time periods that were made for all different purposes. And then they collectively are contextualized as art and put on little pedestals or within glass cases and all kind of equated with each other. When in fact, like I said, they were made for radically different reasons, radically different contexts originally. But the, the very fact that we could even come up with an institution like an art museum and lump all these things into the category of art indicates that somewhere in modern history, we, we came up with this new concept that was able to swallow up mm -hmm. um, other types of things that had existed before. In the book, I talk about how prior to the Christian paradigm, there had been things like cult statues, idols, as they would be yeah. called in the Bible, um, that people worshipped, that people brought offerings to, and that kind of functioned as magical containers for some kind of divine power, and purported to very accurately describe in their lineaments kind of divine beings. 
And those weren't art. They were actually more magic and they, they were more presumptuous, you might say. And they didn't really quite honor our modern idea of transcendence. Um, in the ancient world, there was also decoration, like aesthetic objects that were just there to look pretty or to give pleasure. Um, but very often those objects didn't have any ambition to yield onto the transcendent either. In addition, there were other kinds of magical objects like funerary um, art, we would call it art today, but funerary sculpture, which was often meant to be an actual container of the soul of the deceased and other kinds of ritual objects like that. But none of those held this paradoxical tension of trying, I guess, to be a window onto a vast transcendent divine that cannot be captured in the material, yet can be anchored to the material. So I do talk in the book about how really the early Christian icon, which is this small, rectangular, humble, wooden object with marks made on it, functions as a window onto transcendent divinity and onto beings that are abiding in heaven. That's possible. That that sort of paradox is possible because the transcendent became imminent. It took on material form and it could be represented in part materially, like through the icon, also through like the embodied saint. But it never pretended to be comprehensive. It was always going to be a window onto something bigger and more vast. And so, yeah, the idol, it's like the early Christian icon is a much humbler object than the ancient idol, mm. um, but it also yields onto something much greater. And the idea of one transcendent God that came into the world through the Judeo-Christian tradition and that could be linked to the material world through the incarnation um, really enabled that, that paradigm to exist in the first place, I think. I wonder if people listening to this might hear or wonder if what you're talking about, maybe they say this sounds like Platonism. Um, ah, but, mm -hmm. but in your book, you make a distinction between the two, that it's not that we're sort of looking through the art as if it doesn't matter, right? As if, mm -hmm. as if the thing we're looking at doesn't matter, because what really matters is sort of this immaterial realm. So how is that different? How is the Christian conception I know this is a really large topic, but lots yeah, of people Yeah, this to is challenging. Uh -huh. but, but what, um, how would you distinguish between the Platonic notion of, you know, that the, the reality of things is elsewhere uh, over against what you're articulating here with Christian art? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we think about Platonism, and on, I am not an expert in the whole range of ancient Greek philosophers, and I could misspeak. And I think about Plato's probably misinterpreted a lot of the time. But um, I, I think of the Platonic form, and that's sort of a, a famous takeaway that people get from Platonic philosophy, where the Platonic form is a maybe flattened out or simplified or shadow-like echo of something richer and higher and greater, like the shadows in the cave, right? We think about mm -hmm. Plato's cave, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there, there's, there's even, I guess for me, there's something still a little bit redolent of the ancient world idol in that concept, in the sense that the, the platonic form and then the physical echo of that platonic form is still kind of purporting to sort of capture the exact outlines in a way of the transcendent thing. And therefore, the transcendent thing isn't truly transcendent. I, I think there's something maybe a little too confident or too presumptuous about the platonic form, maybe, and that it thinks that it actually is capturing the outlines and it's constraining or confining the transcendent a little bit by actually knowing what its form is supposed to be, even mm -hmm. if it's not capturing it in all its richness. And so it's very limiting 
Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you, Justin. Yeah, it does. Um, but uh, I, I think there something about the humility of the early Christian icon is, is saying that I, I, it's, it's evoking, but it's not trying to contain at all. It doesn't purport to contain or give you a very accurate image, really. It's just evoking and just kind of functioning almost like a funnel or a point of focus. In ancient Greek art, you will often see an aspiration to be perfectly beautiful. And you see um, mathematicians like Pythagoras trying to figure out what the exact perfect beautiful proportions of things are supposed to be so that the form that you're creating is as, as perfect as you can make it and therefore is as accurate to sort of divine perfection as possible. And there's even this sense that you can presumptuously grasp the divine in a sense by achieving all these perfect proportions, um, like the golden ratio and so on and so forth. Um, early Christian icons, I feel like an early Christian art in general is not so preoccupied with those sort of locked in mathematical perfections because it is aware that it is insufficient just by nature. And so it's much more content to be like humble on its surface, to be not perhaps mathematically perfect, to be a bit more sort of open and messy so that it can evoke the the transcendence almost through through its little flaws. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you already mentioned is this idea even of, you know, going to a museum and looking at things and this idea of looking, uh, gazing, our longing to see, our longing to be seen uh, is mm -hmm. really central in your book. You say art has to do with teaching us to answer the central ethical question, where will I look? Mm -hmm. And uh, seeing images is connected to seeing image bearers in a way that recognizes dignity, recognizes otherness. I think this is sort of what you're getting at with the discussion of Platonism, of recognizing that there's an otherness there that cannot be possessed. And so I wonder if you could say more about this theme, our desire to look, our desire to be looked upon, and how art trains the imagination mm -hmm. to look. Yeah, I think the gaze is so important. I think our culture is recognizing that at an intuitive level, how we look at each other is so important. The way you fix your eyes on someone and the emotions that are conveyed through that have enormous an enormous impact on that person. And I'm thinking about in recent years, debates on, in, on campuses about microaggressions and things like that, and how there's this awareness that if you bring a look of distrust or um, disdain or disgust into an encounter with someone, it affects them at a soul level. It, it compromises their ability to succeed. It affects their um, uh, self-esteem. And uh, it's just very powerful how you look at someone. Conversely, if you look at someone with a look of love, you can lift them up. You can give them a jolt of confidence. You can help them start to understand their own dignity. You can make their day. I have, uh, there's this quote I want to share. I think it's, I think it's in the book. I actually can't remember. It's a quote from Pope Benedict XVI from his encyclical Deus Caritas Est, which means God is love. That's in Latin, and it was published in 2005. And here's the quote. Pope Benedict XVI said, quote, Seeing with the eyes of Christ, I can give to others much more than their outward necessities. I can give them the look of love which they crave, unquote. And his assumption there is that everyone on a deep soul level is craving a look of love. Hmm. Um, and I, it even makes me think about language, like about the beatific vision. If we think about medieval philosophers talking about how their aim through all of their 
logicking and contemplation and everything is the beatific vision, um, which is like beholding the face of God. The thing is, God God looks back, right? It's it's not a it's not a one way street. The beatific vision means we are looking at God, but He's also looking at us. And when he looks at us, he's looking at us with eyes that define us and that see us and that like delve deep into our souls and reveal ourselves to us. And we as image bearers in the world, we have that effect on each other, I think. Um, How I look at you, Justin, is going to affect you and how you look at me is going to affect me. And that's even more so in truly embodied situations like you and I were looking at each other across computer screens. I think there's there's a little bit of a you lose some of the charge that way. but um. To get back to the idea about art training the gaze, I do believe from the very earliest Christian centuries, things like the icon, things like the imagery that you find in the early Christian catacombs, things like the artwork that you find in early churches and later in Gothic cathedrals, is all oriented to train the gaze to look with love and to look with love upon what is holy and what is innocent and what is admirable. And it's also aimed toward training the viewer to look with love upon just the human body and and humanity in general as an image bearing sort of vessel. And I I think um, Christian art, I think it changed the world because of that. It trained people all over the world as Christianity spread to start looking upon their fellows in a different way, to look with love. And that changed society. It introduced ideas into society that didn't exist before about Mm -hmm. esteem for the poor, like celebrating meekness and compassion and and like lifting up weakness and not saying that might is right and finding dignity in everyone. Yeah, it it all happened at a very um, subconscious level, I think. Maybe it wasn't super intentional on the part of people making the art in the first place, but I think it was all like Holy Spirit inspired Mm -hmm. to train us how to see each other as image bearers, Mm -hmm. like you said. And it's been, went on for hundreds of years and we kind of lost sight of that a little bit. We tossed it out, but um, it was a very important part of the formation of the Christian world, I think. Yeah. I want to ask you in a second about some of the disastrous consequences of tossing mm-hmm. that out. But first of all, I love that answer so much because it does expand beyond the conception that sometimes people have of art as being primarily about communicating a message. You know, sometimes uh, we might say, oh, what did I get out of that? Or like, what, what I look at this, what's the message it's trying to convey? And thinking about art as communicating otherness or mystery that is not something I can just kind of loot, you know, loot the image for some sort Mm -hmm. of I really appreciate that and the emphasis on moving beyond art as communication because the gaze the two people have with each other can't be reduced to ideas or a word or something like that. Yeah. I think that's true. I think when we if we reduce the artwork to a text, then we are we're putting it in a category it doesn't belong to. Um, I know we might get to that a little bit later, but the um, focus, I think, latter Christianity starting in the Reformation and a little bit later, very strong focus on scripture, maybe has a tendency to reduce a lot of things to text Mm. um, and and view the word as being nobler than, than other kinds of embodiment and communication, um, reducing everything to how it can be sort of verbally understood. And 
yeah, that that just that drains the can drain the life out of things. And yeah, if we're just trying to decode an artwork, then we're not receiving it in its fullness. And I hope we can relearn how to do that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's let's go there and talk about the Reformation a bit. This podcast is an institution that is mm-hmm. proud of its Reformed heritage, and um, so maybe it might be challenging in some ways to think through this. But I think it's really important. Uh, you talk about sort of the importance of art training our attention. And I think the reality is that a lot of us are pretty impatient with works of art, with works of visual art, especially if we can't discern quickly what it means. Uh, And so as you tell the story of art history in the Western world, you do note the reform tradition in particular shies away from the visual in favor of the verbal. And you write, betrayed by the ancient church, the people of the reformation age gathered the wherewithal to flee and to heal but they fled too far and shielded themselves too well. And I wonder if you could say more about that, your sense of the consequences of the Reformation. Obviously, I mean, we believe the Reformation is a positive thing, at mm-hmm. least at this place we do. But some of the maybe un- unintended consequences of this way of thinking, of the preference for the verbal on the ways that we relate to the visual, to visual art and whether that weak aesthetic immune system makes us susceptible to certain imaginative diseases. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting metaphor, the weak aesthetic immune system. I feel like, yeah, the world was in such turmoil around the time the Reformation was happening, and there was so much inspiration in the world and also so much conflict. And um, for me, as an art historian, it could make me feel like certain practices and techniques were were discarded in the way that baby is thrown out with the bathwater, right? you're trying to get away from corruption, you're trying to get away from manipulation, you're trying to get away from things you might associate with brainwashing or with idolatry, or with temptation. And um, in the process, like I said, you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater, you're, you're getting rid of things that evolved in a grassroots way for very good reasons. And you're kind of forgetting why they evolved in the first place. And you're forgetting about the best ways to use them. And that was, again, because they got corrupted and were used unethically um, in many ways. So I think that what this does, it does result in what you said, like maybe a weak aesthetic immune system where, where a lot of us come into the modern world with um, a quote immune system, spiritual immune system that doesn't know how to process um, certain kinds of inputs. It's just not used to them. It's not acclimated to them. And yet we're bombarded by them, right? Because we live in a super image saturated mm. society um, and we can't get away from them. And we have devices stuck to our bodies that are inundating us with images every moment. Another metaphor I like, I, well, I saw your weak aesthetic immune system metaphor and I thought, oh, maybe a food metaphor, like, so that we're not thinking of art as a disease. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, like a food, um, food that your body is not acclimated to digest, right? Uh, food you're not used to. And so your biome has to adapt to it because um, mm. you, you were never, never introduced to it as a child, maybe. Um, so you don't know how to digest it. And yet it's being flung at you or it's mm. being rammed down your throat and your body just doesn't know how to process it. Um, so I do think we're kind of in that situation. We haven't learned m- you know, techniques of moderation and healthy consumption of imagery. And so we end up um, becoming gluttons of very harmful imagery. And we lack the patience to develop the skills, right? You you were mentioning that before. So it's something we're unfamiliar with. um, And we don't even know how to start those baby steps toward acclimating ourselves to it and becoming healthy consumers of it. And so that's difficult. And I think that's a type of thing that's going to require discipline 
And I think that we are uniquely a very undisciplined people nowadays mm. because we are very used to instant gratification. We can't, we have a very short attention span. You know, the internet has done this to us. Uh, goods that we can order from Amazon and have delivered to our front step the next day, um, that has done it to us as well. Just instant gratification, right? So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there are any easy answers, but I think if we could you know, be honest with ourselves about the discontent that we feel about the um, sort of immoderation that we feel, how we're lurching this way and that. And um, we, we feel a kind of emptiness and uh, isolation. And, yeah. and just if we could be honest with ourselves about that and commit ourselves to engaging in disciplines that are going to help us reconnect with healthy maybe more organic practices, including a more sort of universal and ancient use of imagery, I think we'd all be the happier for it. But it's going to take willpower and it's going to take accountability because we live in a world of gluttonous plenty and sort of abstaining from that and making really disciplined choices just gets harder and harder and harder. But I pray by the grace of God that we can wake up and do that. Yeah, it's interesting. When you were talking, it made me think of there's this line from uh, Rene Girard where he talks about the hurricane of desire that we live in. And that's a fitting picture maybe of the way that we feel besieged in many ways by all of these visual stimuli that we maybe haven't been trained to uh, to deal with. And you give you you talk about this under the the term society of the spectacle. And you write about how in this society that everything is staged for social media. We always think of ourselves as performing. We think that appearance is all that matters. Uh, but you also say that our freedom to create ourselves comes at a soul-crushing price. You write, how anxiety-inducing to perpetually self-name and self-create. What a crushing burden. I wonder if you could say more about this and how, as you said, we've sort of laid this way of gazing, this, this more patient, dignifying way of gazing at the world aside. and the result of this is a spectacle society where um, we're always performing and, and concerned with appearances and things like that. I wonder if you could say more about that. Right. We're performing. We are using and being used. Mm. Like if you, if you think about this attitude of constant performance, um, what you're trying to do is package yourself in such a way that you will be consumed in the way you mm. want to be consumed. And then in turn, you are consuming other people. Mm. And so, I think a lot of the self-fashioning that we do today, maybe all of it, really, because it is performance, it is the deliberate in inhabiting of stereotypes. Like, we, we just acknowledge, we accept, sadly, we accept the fact that everyone just sees in terms of stereotypes, that everyone's going to put us in a category the moment they see us. And we try to shape ourselves into the category that we most want to be in. So we, we like objectify ourselves ahead of time hmm. um, so that we can be objectified hmm. in sort of the least offensive way by the people hmm. we encounter. So I know I, I hesitate to use this word, but it's kind of like this broad scale, like social prostitution almost. I'm sorry to use that word. It's yeah, I, I don't like to use that word, but like we're just selling ourselves. We're selling and consuming. Um, we're, we're deliberately limiting and objectifying ourselves with the expectation that, well, people are going to limit and objectify me anyway. So mm. I might as well make sure it happens on my terms. Yeah. And so, and it's everywhere. I, I was thinking earlier today, Justin, as I was thinking about your questions, it's like, is there any space in which my students 
do not feel this pressure to self-objectify. My, my students, I talk to them about their identity issues, um, social problems they're having with peers or their parents. There's like no space where, where people don't feel a pressure to self-objectify. They feel that pressure at home. They feel that pressure in their dorm. They definitely feel that pressure in class. Mm. If they go to church, they feel that pressure at church. And so it, it made me think that, um, you know, what we really need is I think a lot of people need a return to private prayer practices where you can put yourself, if you can, like imaginatively, actually put yourself in the presence of a God who sees through all the labels, sees through all the costumes, sees you for who you really are, and you can't hide it. Mm. Um, and you just have to sit there and accept how he sees you. And if you sit and accept that, what you're going to be getting from him, what you're going to see in return is not what you expect. Like, I, I think a lot of us, we don't know who we are. Like, like this pressure to perform has caused us to completely lose sight of who we are intrinsically and not even know ourselves. Um, so we're just running around with lots of illusions everywhere. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's feeling this angst, and I think all of us do on mm -hmm. some level, I feel like a, a return to, yeah, personal prayer and just sitting in front of God and saying, I believe in you. I believe you exist. I believe you see everything. Look at me. Who am I? Yeah. And then just accepting the results of that, which I think will be hard at first, but it's something we all need to do because we've all lost touch of who we are. Um, and I want to say too, if we can give each other that look of love, though, we can be images of God and we can start to affect that on a social level as well. But um, I think prayer is just maybe the most effective way to do that. Wow, that's that's really powerful. That sense that we're created to be image bearers, but we've turned ourselves into objects. Uh, we've desecrated the dignity that we carry and that others carry too. Um, it makes me think of, in one of my classes a few weeks ago, we watched the movie, The Truman Show. And for those who don't know, this is a movie about a guy who's born and grows up and is on a reality television show. There's cameras everywhere. And he's never not an object of entertainment for people and you know sort of the story goes on and he begins to to realize that this is what's going on and it's sort of a comedy it's sort of a horror movie in some ways mm -hmm. but we watched it as a class and the students sort of came to this realization that they have truman showed them or that we have truman showed ourselves right yeah. that we are always putting ourselves on display through our devices and through recording everything capturing all of these moments or capturing people all the time through our screens but there is a sense of almost, you know, like you said, there's no alternative. You know, what, what else? What else can we do? This is the world that we live in. And I read your book with a great sense of hope. That I, at least I gleaned a great sense of hope from the book. Even as you're describing these mental prisons that we inhabit, it it does seem like ultimately what you're writing here is grounded in a hope that that there is a way out of the mental prison, that there is a way out of this never-ending pressure of performance. I wonder if you could say more about the hope. Yeah. And I, 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 of course, I think there's hope. And I believe that God makes makes good out of everything. I, I think that all the suffering we go through, all the kind of just ridiculous situations we put ourselves in as individuals and as a culture, God uses all of that. And um, even if he just uses it to show us how unsatisfying it is. And so, you know, you, you let the little kid gorge on candy once so that they realize that it's not good to gorge on candy. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like we're in a gluttonous culture and a very 
a culture that encourages all of this like self-packaging and self-expression as something that's empowering. And we, we're, we are glutting ourselves on it. And I, I think we are very quickly beginning to realize how unsatisfying it is and how the power to self-shape is actually an oppressive type of bondage. Mm. Um, I think we're reaching a point where people are realizing that that's not not what the goal should be. And um, if we're feeling ennui and dissatisfaction, and if we're feeling mysteriously depressed and we don't know why, and miserable, even though we have so much money and so many opportunities, it's because God's using this to show us that ultimately all that stuff is unsatisfying and he's the one who satisfies. Hmm. And that um, letting him cleanse us and sort of motivate us and gather us up in, in his Holy Spirit and giving him control and letting him be our true father hmm. is, is ultimately the only thing that's going to satisfy. And so I think that my hope is just that, you know, honestly, a lot of the suffering I see is evidence of God at work in, in proving to people this is unsatisfying. Hmm. I alone am, am, am satisfying. God alone satisfies. And so yeah, I, I think we can learn. I think we can exercise the discipline. And I think we can be quiet and still and learn how to approach the other, approach our brothers and sisters as dignified, separate, mysterious individuals again, um, because the other stuff is good. We're going to find it's, it's making us sick and we're not going to want it anymore. And we're going to want to vomit it out and we're going to want something more wholesome and clean. And I think God is, is leading us to that. Yeah. Hmm leading us to that through our dissatisfaction. Yeah. So yeah, I am hopeful. And I do think there are strategies in the Christian past that that can help mm. us kind of rediscover that and find a richness and a beauty in that. Mm. And our art, of course, being one of those things mm -hmm. for sure. So if we're thinking about where do we start, right? If art can train us in some sense to to learn to look at the world, to learn to gaze in the right way, uh, one of the questions that we ask is, well, what makes something a work of art? You distinguish between artwork and object, between icon and idol. So how do we distinguish, I guess, where do we start to train ourselves when it comes to distinguishing, well, what even is a work of art? What's worthy of my sustained attention? Yeah, maybe some art is not as worthy as others. Mm -hmm. How would you answer that? that yeah. That's a really good question. These in a lot of my classes, we have we have debates. Like we'll devote multiple class sessions to what is art yeah. and like what is good art, <laughs> and it's almost yeah. I, it's really hard to come up with succinct answers to those questions. I feel like true art is something that is made by human beings, right? Art is artifice, right? So it's made by human beings in an attempt to evoke the transcendent, I think I will say. In an att it attempts to point beyond itself and evoke the transcendent. And in, in that sense, it is intrinsically humble because it's not trying to it's not trying to be an object of worship. It's not trying to contain perfection within itself. It's simply trying to evoke. So um, it's a humble attempt to evoke the transcendent that humans make. Yeah, I, I probably had a better definition at one point, but those are my words right now. So um, I, I think that can be, I think the framed picture is a way that that impulse has been manifested that has been very effective for people over the years um, because it's, 
you, you put a frame around a rectangular image and it kind of demarcates this space that you can gaze into and hopefully it leads you into contemplation. So that's like a, a very effective form of, of this sort of tool, I guess. There's just the framed picture, which also happens to be portable and has mm -hmm. other benefits like that as well. You know, it doesn't have to be a framed picture. Although early Christian icons were basically like that. But I think if, if you think of art as a, a human-made uh, tool that tries to evoke the transcendent, that tries to evoke something larger than itself and better than itself, there are a lot of objects that human beings have made that have some piece of that in them. And so if we get back to the idea of the art museum that has all kinds of things in it that were not necessarily meant to evoke the transcendent when they were made, but they do mm. anyway. And they do anyway, because all human beings, whether they believe that consciously or not, are spiritual creatures that yearn for the transcendent, right? So even if you're an atheist, I would argue you're still a spiritual creature that yearns for the transcendent. And if you make a product, if you pour your love into something aesthetic, it's going to evoke the transcendent to a certain degree, whether you actually meant it to or not. Mm. Um, so I, I think one reason why we can gather things like that together in art museums is because they all do. You know, mm. we, we on an intuitive level sense that this object is evoking the transcendent and someone made it with that purpose, whether they consciously meant to or not. But it, but it does evoke the transcendent somehow, and it does effectively do that for the viewer, at least to a small degree. That having been said, I think it's, you know, objects that do that are on a continuum. I think um, they may maybe evoke the transcendent more or less accurately or more or less excellently. And that probably has to, that has to do with how intentional the artist was, maybe, and how fully aware he or she was of the grandness of their ambition. Um, and then it also has to do with the skill level of the artist and, and how um, much their hands were able to effectively sort of execute uh, the vision that they were trying to manifest. Yeah. And then it might have to do, you know, with just with the accuracy of the beliefs that were put into what they were making. Mm. So there are many different dimensions that I think could feed into the excellence of an object of this kind. But I think that arguably almost everything humans make has just a little sliver of that kind of artfulness. Mm. If you think about that longing for the transcendent being implicit there, because again, we're all spiritual and we yeah. do all long for that, whether we know that or not. I wonder by way of closing, if you could offer counsel to two groups of people, first to artists in Christian community, often it's hard to be an artist in the Christian community. And so what words would you give to artists who are also Christian? And then what counsel would you give to people who might not consider themselves artists, but want to live creatively uh, in God's created world? Yeah, the artist question is a really good one. And I, over the course of my career, have seen how there can, there's distrust um, between artists, practicing artists who are immersed in the contemporary art world, and then like Christian congregations. And I think there are lots of reasons for that. One reason I think is actually um, because despite the fact that I support the artistic vocation, and I think we need artists, and I think art is important, I think that the contemporary art world is a rather disordered and corrupt place that encourages unhealthy behaviors and unhealthy um, sort of self-concepts sometimes. I'm actually honestly quite disturbed by the shape of the contemporary art world in the sense that very often it consists of someone who aspires to be an artist 
figuring out a way to extract their innermost angst Mm. and struggle and package it into a brand and then relentlessly self-promote it and seek fame. Mm. Um, and if, if you think about that, that just sounds awful. Like it's actually also our, our whole internet ecosystem of, of performance is just an extension of that, really. Hmm. Um, artists have been doing that. We're doing that before Instagram stars were doing that. But like if you conceive of art as vulnerable, angsty self-disclosure that hmm. you then package for an audience and relentlessly self-promote, then art is slimy i don't know Mm. it's like it's exploitative i I think there are lots of things about the contemporary art world that are exploitative and Mm. that actually encourage people to engage in self-wounding for an audience like spiritual or psychological self-wounding that encourage people to sort of parade their pain or to indulge in self-pity on on a sort of public platform or that encourage artists to be um a little too besotted with their own uniqueness, maybe, and, and become a little too egotistical because they're trying to hone and like make distinctive their own personal brand. Mm. And I, I don't think all contemporary artists or contemporary Christian artists do this to a super harmful extent, but I think that the just the ecosystem that they have to abide in to make a reputation and make money mm. um, results in products that are arguably not suitable for church audiences all the time, or or that are maybe a little too individualistic, a little too ego-focused, and a little too idiosyncratic to be super effective in like a worship setting or something like that. So um, I think that Christian congregations are perhaps right to distrust a lot of what they see coming from the contemporary art world, because it's not in the end made to be addressing a broad audience in a relatable way. It's actually meant as a form of vulnerable, like self-disclosure and then self-branding. So I, I guess, you know, this sounds hard on artists, but I feel like in order for that reproachment to occur between Christian congregations and contemporary artists, there needs to be a rethinking of what it means to be a contemporary artist. And there needs to be a different incentive system for a contemporary artist so that it's not about almost exploitative self-disclosure, but about something else. And I think church institutions could be instrumental in helping kind of reimagine that paradigm and create mm. a, creating a new incentive structure. Mm. So that's the first part. In terms of people who want consumers or audiences who want to kind of get into the arts, um, I actually think... Um, I think it's good to like go to a museum, um, just go to what you think is beautiful, indulge in um, things of the past that were made for very innocent reasons, I guess, and learn about the past and try to get out of our modern individualistic mindset and just try to absorb things coming from from earlier paradigms, earlier, more embodied paradigms as opposed to like digitized paradigms or less individualistic, more communitarian paradigms. I think getting into that headspace by going to museums or even just flipping through books can be very helpful. Yeah. And just like disciplining yourself to try to learn. Um, they say the past is like another country, right? It's mm. like, um, yeah, learning about the past can help you break out of the sort of prisons that we live in today. So um, just try to educate yourself. Did, what, did you mean anything else by that question, Justin? Were you thinking about like non-professionals trying to make art perhaps? Was that part of what you were thinking? Or? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, I think it's just that question of of 
oftentimes I'll have students who say, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not creative. And I always correct them and say, no, you are, you might not be an artist, but you are, you know, made in God's image. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, oh, that's a good point. yeah, the arts help unleash some of that creativity. Uh, that's true. That posture towards the world mm-hmm. that allows us to, whatever it is that God has called us to do, to do it with care and with dignity and all, all of those sorts of things that, that you're talking about. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. No, you're right. I actually teach mostly artists. And so I don't have to encourage them to tap into the creative side of themselves. They're already doing that in spades. They kind of need to rein it in. maybe. (laughs) Um, Like other types of people. Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, discovering that creative part of yourself. I agree. And and realizing that that you are more than just what you think consciously. Mm -hmm. And you are more than just the procedures you go through over the course of the day. And you are more than just logical processes. And I I think a lot of people do have a little bit of trouble tapping into that. Um, And so, yeah, I do think that, um, I don't know, if you're trying to discover that about yourself, like spontaneous doodling or even like, uh, let's see, meditating on memories. Um, one thing I do with some of my students is I encourage them to try to access what their personal vocabularies are, their kind of personal iconic vocabularies. Like if there are, if there's imagery from their past or sense memories from their past that they feel like have shaped them as a human being or just like holistic experiences and they can remember the sights and smells and sounds, or there might be like an iconic image that pops into their head or something like that. A lot of that stuff is repressed for a lot of people. But if you can try to rediscover that and maybe even express it through a drawing or a poem or something like that, that can help you. Yeah access a part of yourself that maybe you had been ignoring and that can also help you instantly empathize with artworks as well where you might see some of those same like a hint of that same embodiment being expressed by someone who lived 500 years ago maybe and sometimes all it takes is accessing your own memories and your own sense experiences to be able to enter into that dialogue that's great. Uh, I think I'm at the end of my time and my questions. So is there anything else you'd like to add before I close the, the podcast episode? Uh, not really. I just want to thank you so much for your thought-provoking questions. They're really deep and probing and um, for your just really careful attention to the book as well. I'm very gratified by that and humbled. And I just thank you so much. And thank you for this invitation. It's been really fun. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. As you can tell, I could talk about this for a long time. Yeah. Uh, should have more conversations. That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. The book is Betzalel's Body, The Death of God and the Birth, Birth of Art by Katie Kresser. She's been our guest on the In All Things podcast. Katie, thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much, Justin. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing with others. This week, we close out with a song from our friends, The Ruralists. This is my favorite song on the new record. And appropriate for today's episode, it's a song about trying to see and trying to say what it's not possible to say, and yet trying to say it anyway. From the album, Trying, here is the song, Murmur. You're a All your ever-shifting parts Work modern art That I cannot